Good evening, everybody. Good to see you. Merry Christmas to you. My name is Dan Halleck, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm thankful that you've joined us tonight for uh, this time to worship the Lord together. And if you've got kids who are crying, that's totally cool. Don't worry about it. We know that that's part of the, the game tonight, so it reminds us of Jesus. Um, you know, about a month ago, I was... I don't know if any of you saw this. I was watching on TV the, uh, the live broadcast of the lighting of the giant Christmas tree in Rockefeller Plaza in New York City. You know, the tree is, it's almost 100 feet tall, just huge thing. It's covered with tens of thousands of Christmas lights. And, and then down below, uh, they have it set up so that there's a, a giant crowd of thousands and thousands of people who, who braved the cold and dressed up warmly to, to see this tree light up for the first time. And, and then directly across from the tree, there's uh, a stage and there's a number of famous celebrities uh, who were standing on the stage to lead the crowd in the festivities. And, and I was kind of looking at them. I was curious, personally, I was just curious about their religious beliefs. And so just for fun, I kind of researched each of them and found that some on that stage were self-proclaimed Christians and, and others were uh, Jewish and others were Muslims and some were atheists. And, and I kind of thought to myself, what an interesting group of people to come to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Uh, and, and after some of them performed, you know, songs for the crowd that was there, it was time to light the Christmas tree. And so uh, the, the celebrities led the crowd in counting down together. And when they all shouted zero together, the Christmas tree just man, came alive with light. It was, it was so beautiful. It was blazing and blinking with all these tens of thousands of lights, just like Clark Griswold's house. And... And immediately when that happened, everybody joined together in, in singing an enthusiastic rendition of Joy to the World. And as the cameras kind of panned across the crowd and the faces of the people joyfully singing this song, I was, I was just taken aback, really, by what I was seeing and by, why, by uh, what I was hearing, that here on national television, thousands of people from different faiths and some who claim no faith we're singing, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. He rules the world with truth and grace, and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love the wonders of his love. And that's kind of how the song ends. And it says, then we know the, the refrain that says, let every heart then prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. And as thousands of people were packed together, singing this at the top of their lungs, it just blew me away. Partly because it was just this glorious thing to see Jesus' name worshiped on, on NBC. That is so not politically correct. But also I was blown away because I imagine a lot of those people in that crowd had no idea what they were really singing. I mean, think about that song, Joy to the World, for a second. What do we mean when we sing that Jesus is the Lord who has come to us? What do we mean when we sing that Jesus is the king of the earth who rules over us with truth and grace? 
What do we mean when we sing that Jesus is the Savior who reigns over us in his glory and whose righteousness demands our praise? That's what joy to the world says. What do we mean when we sing that the coming of Jesus is the greatest reason for the world to be joyful? And does any of that make any difference for your life and for my life? Well, the lyrics of this popular Christmas carol find their origin in the Bible, so it only makes sense to see what the Bible has to say about this. And so tonight we're going to look briefly at some verses in the Gospel of Luke. These verses were written in the years immediately following Jesus' death by a physician-turned-investigative reporter named Luke. And he was not one of the 12 disciples, but he wanted to find out the truth about Jesus for himself. And so Luke spent a lot of time interviewing many of the first Christians, and eventually he wrote this book, which we now know as the Gospel according to Luke. And in chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, Luke writes about what happened that night, the night of Jesus' birth. He says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So let's ask two questions about this passage that Luke answers here with his investigative journalism. First, who was this baby? And second, right answer, why was this baby born? Okay, first, who was this baby? In verses 9 to 11, uh, we read that an awesome servant of the Lord, not a little puny thing, but a huge thing, okay? An angel appears to some shepherds out in their fields in the middle of the night, and the angel is so majestic in his appearance that it actually radiates the glory of the Lord to the point of horrifying these tough shepherds. Okay? And that's why the first words out of the angel's mouth are, fear not, or in present day language, you guys chill out. I'm just an angel, okay? I'm not the Lord, I'm just a messenger. And then the angel tells the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So, so this majestic angel tells these shepherds that just a little bit earlier on that very day, the, the Lord was born into humanity as a baby boy. Now, you need to know this. The Lord was the name of God used all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And that name, quote, the Lord, was considered so holy by the Jewish people that they believed that anybody who even said it with their lips or wrote it down on paper would be eternally cursed. Okay? So when the angels call the Lord by his real name, the shepherds are thinking, this little baby must really be legit <laughs> if the angels are calling him the Lord. 
And the angel says here that the Lord God had taken on human form in the person of this baby, Jesus, who is, we see another title, the Christ. Christ is another title used all throughout the Old Testament, and it means Messiah or Savior or the Anointed One. And for thousands of years before that night, the Jewish people had been waiting for God to send a Savior who would free them from oppression and who would make them a victorious nation again. And so the angel confirms that this Jesus is the one. He is the anointed one promised long ago that this baby is the Savior with a capital S. And finally, the angel mentions another piece of prophetic information that many of us might miss. The angel says that Jesus was born in, quote, the city of David, which was the precise birthplace of the Messiah that the prophet Micah prophesied 700 years earlier. This tiny town, the city of David, where King David was born in Bethlehem. And so in just a few sentences, this angel testifies that the baby born in Bethlehem that night was no ordinary baby. That he was Jesus, the Christ, the one Lord who created heaven and earth. He was the Savior, capital S, of humanity. Now let's get to our second question. Why was this baby born according to this passage? Well, at the time of Jesus' birth, the Jewish people did not have a land of their own. They, they were not free to do whatever they wanted to do. The Jews were ruled by the Roman Empire. And the Romans said, well, we'll let you live here as long as you don't make problems for us and as long as you live by our rules. And so the Jews were happy to be alive, but they still believed that God was going to send them a savior from heaven who would conquer the Romans and put the Jewish nation back on top forever. But Jesus didn't show up like a conquering king, did he? He wasn't cruising through the Israeli desert with a caravan of tanks and Humvees and F-16s flying over. Jesus didn't show up like that at all. He was born into poverty. His parents weren't married. His first bed was a feeding trough for farm animals, and it was a borrowed feeding trough. Jesus was the exact opposite of what any of us in this room would hope for in a conquering king. And so the Jewish people were not very interested in him. They weren't interested in this baby named Jesus. They believed, though, that still the Savior was yet to come, and to this day they still believe that he's yet to come. Now, the Jews were right to expect a Savior who would free them from oppression. However, they underestimated the massiveness of the freedom that the Savior would really bring, okay? Because Jesus didn't come to bring salvation from earthly oppression. He came to free humans from spiritual oppression. And Jesus didn't come to rescue only the Jews. Jesus came to rescue people from all earth's people groups from spiritual oppression. And Jesus didn't come to spiritually save people for a brief period of time. Jesus came to spiritually free people forever, for the rest of eternity. Jesus came to be an infinitely greater savior than anybody expected or was hoping for. And so the, the enormity of Jesus' mission 
revealed that Jesus knew something that you and I don't think often about. And that is the fact that we people are eternal beings. In other words, our existence has no end. We will consciously exist forever. These imperfect physical bodies that our souls live inside are very temporary. Our, Our souls, though, that fill these bodies are not temporary. And most of us are very quick to forget that. And so were the people of Jesus' day. You see, despite what they thought, the biggest problem facing the ancient Jews was not who was leading their government or how to protect themselves from their military enemies or how comfortably they could live with their possessions in their own land. The ancients were mistaken to think that their biggest problems had to do with their earthly comforts and their earthly circumstances. And the same is true for you and me today. We are mistaken tonight if we think that our biggest problems are how we can live comfortably on earth or how to protect ourselves from our military enemies or who is in the White House. These questions are somewhat important, but they are extremely temporary problems, okay? They are almost unimportant compared to problems that hinder our eternal joy and our eternal comfort. So the question that is actually massively more important, if we believe the Bible, if we believe that this Jesus is who he said he is, the question that's way more important is, am I gonna be happy and at peace in eternity? (laughs) That's way more important than am I happy in the next 30 days, however long God gives me here. Am I gonna be happy after this life? And how can I know that? Let's look again in the passage, Luke 2, 14. The angels sing this. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So there is a promise of peace here for humanity. However, peace is not promised to everybody. Peace is promised to, quote, those with whom he, God, is pleased. So the question we gotta ask is, How can I please God? What do I need to do to please God so that I can have peace with him now and in eternity? And in short, the Bible says that ever since the first generation of humans, we humans have primarily been concerned with finding pleasure on our own terms instead of finding pleasure according to God's terms. We have not believed God when he said these instructions will give you joy. We have not trusted God. We have not submitted to him as God, even though he is God and we are not. And that rebellion against God is what God calls sin. Because God is good. He's a good judge. He's a righteous judge who always does what's right. Because he is that kind of God, he doesn't sweep wrongdoings under the rug and pretend he doesn't know about him. God rightly punishes for sin and he rightly punishes us. And he's punished us in an interesting way. He does things differently than we do him because he's holy. But he has actually given us over totally to the things that we said we want more than him. 
He said, okay, have it. He allows us to chase after all of the sinful things that we in our great wisdom think that we're, is gonna make us happier than God will. And God says that each and every one of us has done this. We've all sinned and that our sin has done something to our relationship with him. That it's separated us from him. Okay? This is how Isaiah 59.2 says it. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. He does not hear. What this means is left to ourselves. You and I don't have peace with God. We need to know that. Because we're not the people that the angels describe to the shepherds as those with whom God is pleased. We have become God's enemies. We are under his wrath now and in eternity. And get this, Romans 8, 8 says this. Those who are in the flesh, us, cannot please God. Cannot please God. So how can we ever hope to please God if it's impossible to please God? There's only one way. The only way that we could please God is if God took the initiative to remove the sin that makes us his enemies and if he replaced that sin with something that pleases him so that then he would be pleased with us and we could have peace with him. But why would he do that? You and I wouldn't do that, right? We know ourselves. I'm not gonna do that. We are the ones who turned on him. We're the ones who disrespected him, who spit in his face, who dishonored him. Why would he bend over backwards to save our bacon? Why would he love us? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That baby born in Bethlehem would remove the sin that makes us God's enemies and he would replace our sin with what pleases God. This means as the baby, Jesus, he was born the whole reason he was born was to die in our place. Jesus was born as a baby to grow up into a man, become a man like no other man, a man with no sin. Jesus, who is God in human flesh, made himself born into humanity in order to be unjustly crucified on a cross where he could make an, ex uh, an eternal exchange for you. There was an exchange that happened on the cross. He would become your wrongdoings, your wickedness, and your sin, and he would become this barrier, this sin that has separated you from him, that makes it so that he can't even hear you. And by becoming your and my sin and then dying, he would put to death the sin forever. He would take away the sin that blocks us from God and that makes us his enemies. And then he would do more than that. He would replace what was in us with what is pleasing to God so that we can now be friends with God now and in eternity. And what is it that pleases God? It would have to be something holy, meaning something not of us, something totally separate. What pleases God is the righteousness of God. 
What pleases God is God because he's the only holy thing in the universe. And so on the cross, Jesus pulled out of us our sin and he put it on himself on the cross. And he suffered for it, the eternal suffering that we should suffer. And at the same time, he took his own righteousness and put it inside of his people to turn them into the righteousness of God. He was eternally condemned on the cross so that his people would be eternally blessed. Wow. First Peter 2.24 says it this way, really succinctly. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So the way that you and I please God the way that we can know for sure that his peace rests on us, hear me closely, is not by relying on anything that we have done to please God, but by only relying on what Jesus has done to please God the Father on our behalf. So if you want to have peace with God, if you want to have a friendship with God, this is what he says, turn from your sin as your savior, which you think will save you, but will only destroy you. And instead, turn to Jesus. Turn to me. Believe that Jesus is God. Trust that he came. That he has done everything necessary to take away your sin, your shame, past, present, and future, and replace it with his righteousness so that you might have eternal peace. Wow. And this Christmas Eve night, pray to the Lord. Thank him for sending his son Jesus, trust in him for salvation. And in 2017, be part of a church like ours or wherever you live and learn what it means to follow Jesus with your life. It's almost impossible for any of us to comprehend why God would save his enemies. But scripture tells us this, it gives us glimpses. In 1 John it says, God is love. And God is a fountain, meaning he just overflows with love and subsequently his mercy and grace pour onto unworthy recipients of his love who accept it through faith. He loves because he is love. And without him, you and I have no peace tonight or this new year. And with him, we have everything. This is why we sing in the song, Joy to the World, Oh, the Wonders of His Love. Oh, the wonders of his love. Who can comprehend it? Whose love is like the love of God and Jesus Christ? Nobody's. This is exactly why the angels sing in Luke 8, 14, glory to God. Glory to God in the highest because he is glorious. He is compassionate. He deserves to have our songs and our lives forever point to him as the most glorious and loving savior that our universe will ever know. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to celebrate Jesus' birth and death and resurrection. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to sing joy to the world together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming 2,000 years ago to save your people. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for doing for us what we could never do on our own to please the Father. Thank you for taking away the sin that blocks us from the Father. And thank you for replacing it with your own righteousness that you earned in your life and that you are because you are God.
Thank you, God, for this great joy that you give us, that this life is not the end of the story. Our suffering is not the end of the story. Death is not the end of the story for those who are in you. You conquered it. And your people get a piece of it now. We get your victory because you won it for us on the cross and in your resurrection. I pray for those tonight, God, who have not trusted in this, that you would open their eyes to see you as glorious, God, that this Christmas wouldn't just be another tradition for them that they come to church just because their parents want them to or their relatives want them to, but that, God, you're calling out to them to have a living friendship with you and to have eternal peace with you now and forever. We love you, Lord, and thank you for giving us a real reason to sing joy to the world. Let's, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.